Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with an infectious disease specialist about the rising number of cases of sexually transmitted diseases. So a couple that we see quite often are viral. Um, one of the ones I always want to make sure that I bring up is human papillomavirus or HPV. Then we'll explore what fruit flies can teach us about circadian rhythms and human sleep. The mechanisms of the clock, how it is that you put a clock together on a genetic, on a molecular level, was actually figured out in Drosophila, in the fruit fly. And we'll get an overview of the legal and financial issues of importance to people with chronic diseases or children with special needs. So an estate plan could be just a will, it could be a will and a trust, it could be a will, a trust, a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk with a neurosciences researcher who studies fruit flies to learn about human sleep. Then we'll hear about legal and financial issues of importance to people with a chronic disease or a child with special needs. But first, an infectious disease expert will tell us what we need to know about gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, and other sexually transmitted diseases. A recent report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that progress in the fight against sexually transmitted diseases has unraveled, with rates for some of the most common STDs on the rise. Here to help put this in perspective for Central New York is Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She is Assistant Professor of Infectious Disease at Upstate Medical University, where she is Medical Director of Immune Health Services. She's also the Medical Director of Onondaga County's STD Center. Welcome, Dr. Asatio Reddy. Thank you. Uh, Onondaga County has the highest number of cases per capita of several common STDs, including gonorrhea. So let's start there. Why, why is that? One of the things that happens with any kind of, uh, many kinds of infections, including sexually transmitted infections, is that once they become established in a population, it becomes more difficult for us to get over the hump and um, make the, the rates go down in that population. So uh, I think there's a combination of factors in Onondaga County that include a number of colleges and universities where people are sometimes experimenting with sex for the first time and may have many sexual partners, along with um, longstanding poor access to health care for other populations where sometimes not going into health care providers can propagate illnesses within the community. So I suspect that our numbers reflect those kinds of um, concerns in our area. So maybe once people are infected, they're not getting treated or not getting recognized and Correct. getting treated, and then it spreads without... Correct. Well. Many sexually transmitted infections can be asymptomatic, meaning that they may not have any obvious signs or symptoms. People might, might not know that they're infected, and they may be infected for a long time and spread that infection to others before anything comes to medical attention. So gonorrhea is the one of the ones that's higher here than other places. Correct. What are, are there symptoms that men or women, that affects both genders? It does. Um, though interestingly, men almost always have symptoms and women most often do not have symptoms. Oh. And so it can be very difficult to identify in women and they may carry the infection for a long time, sometimes with uh, long-term consequences for their reproductive health. 
Um, whereas when men get sick, they do tend to come in pretty quickly, um, usually because of burning when they urinate, the most okay. common symptoms. So that would be alarming enough to go see a doctor, but if Correct. you don't have any symptoms. Um, if you get regular uh, checkups, would gonorrhea be discovered during a gynecologic exam or something? Absolutely. So for women um, less than age 25, a regular screening yearly for gonorrhea and chlamydia as well, the test is actually done together at the same time using the same sample is recommended. Um, For anybody 25 and up who has had new sexual partners, or certainly if they have any concerns on exam, um, then that would be added to their panel. For people who come into the Sexually Transmitted Infections Center, we routinely conduct these types of screening on everyone. So everyone who walks through the door and says, I want to be tested, that test would be done regardless of what kinds of symptoms they're having. Okay. Now, what about chlamydia? That's also pretty high numbers in our community, correct? Correct. And chlamydia can actually uh, be tricky for both uh, men and women. It's more commonly symptomatic. So again, more commonly men would show signs and symptoms that they have an infection compared to women. Um, But different from gonorrhea, both men and women can be asymptomatic. So meaning they may not really have any idea that they have that infection. Um, And For those who do have the infection, especially for women, again, the biggest thing that we worry about over the long run, same as with gonorrhea, is that there can be inflammations in the the tubes um, that can lead to to what we call tubal infertility. So that means that um, the fallopian tubes which carry the egg into the uterus um, can be scarred, can be um, narrowed down. And so that can make it difficult at the time that a woman is trying to conceive um, that there may be a problem in in getting the sperm and the egg to meet. Um, Also, something called ectopic pregnancy, where a a pregnancy actually establishes itself inside the the fallopian tube can occur for people who have scarring in their tubes. And so for both gonorrhea and chlamydia for women, that's one of the things that we get most concerned about. for women as well, that can lead to something called pelvic inflammatory disease. Pelvic inflammatory disease is um, a a more severe form of inflammation and infection in the uterus and the fallopian tubes. Um, And that can cause fevers, abdominal pain, back pain, nausea, vomiting. Sometimes it can be severe enough to require someone to go into the hospital. Most women who have gonorrhea chlamydia do not develop a pelvic inflammatory disease, but because those two infections are both associated with a, a much higher risk of, of pelvic inflammatory disease, it's another reason why we feel very concerned and want to make sure we're identifying and treating women who have those infections. But again, like I said, most women who have um, both gonorrhea and chlamydia, and especially chlamydia, don't have symptoms at all. So it becomes very important. And you can have important. both at the same time. You can well. actually have both okay. at the same time. So it becomes very important for um, accessing routine screening, particularly for women who have become sexually active and are less than age 25, um, and anyone who's 25 and up who has new sexual partners and has had unprotected sex. Doing regular screening is really critical. Um, and again, men with chlamydia may present with symptoms, oftentimes burning with urination, um, but they may also carry it without really having very many symptoms. Now there's other STDs too that are a concern um, in this area as well besides gonorrhea and chlamydia. What What are the ones that you see most often? So a couple that we see quite often are viral Um, One of the ones I always want to make sure that I bring up is human papillomavirus, or HPV. HPV is by far and away the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States and probably in the world. 
Um, and it looks like more than half of people uh, are infected with HPV at any time in their lives. Probably the majority of people who have ever had sex have been infected with HPV at one time in their lives. And, and don't know it. Correct, and oftentimes don't, don't know it. So the things that we know that HPV is associated with, um, it can be associated with genital warts. Um, there are many different types, of, subtypes of HPV, and some of those subtypes tend to be more associated with genital warts. Others tend to be more associated with long-term changes um, in the genital area that can lead to cancer down the line. So most people who get an HPV infection will clear it on their own over the course of one to two years, whether that's genital warts or whether it's another kind that they don't even see the symptoms of or the signs of. Um, however, some people, for whatever reason, sometimes it's a difference in their immune system or conditions that, that make their immune system weaker, um, do not clear the infection as quickly. And in particular, those individuals are at risk for developing precancer and cancer down the line. So when we talk about pap smears, even though a pap smear we may or may not associate with anything having to do with a sexually transmitted infection, what we're really looking for is changes associated with the HPV virus. Um, so HPV is one of the most common things that we see. When we see it, what we see, for example, in uh, STD center is we see genital warts. Um, but many people coming to STD center have HPV infections that we don't otherwise recognize because of just having had contact, sexual contact. So it's very, very easily spread with any sexual contact. Now, HPV, that's the one that has there's a vaccine for, right? Exactly. Yeah, so I always want to make sure that I really promote the HPV vaccine. Um, HPV vaccine is, is called Gardasil is the brand name, um, and it actually covers nine different subtypes of HPV, including the types that are the most frequently associated with cancer or precancer, um, and also the subtypes most frequently associated with genital warts. So it really covers the spectrum of what we're most concerned about. Um, and that vaccine is available starting from age 9 up through age 26. Age 11 to 12 is the target age that we really try to get that vaccine done. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is for 11 and 12 year olds, it's recognized that you only need two shots as opposed to a three shot series once you get older. Um, so that's the prime age that the immune system is going to respond best to the vaccine. And so we really encourage pediatricians, parents, um, you know, legal caregivers who are able to consent for the vaccine to get that done during the adolescent period. And particular because, as we said, the vast majority of people who have had any sexual contact will come in contact with HPV at some point because it's so easily transmitted from person to person. So if you're older than age 26, though, um, do you need the vaccine or should you seek it out? Great question. As of yet, we don't have enough evidence to say that people over the age 26, over age 26 in general as a population benefit from HPV vaccine. The main reason being that by that point, most people have already been exposed to the viruses that are in the vaccine. Um, however, any individual person might be different. Um, so somebody who's never had sex up through age 26 might still benefit from the, the vaccine. However, they may not get it covered by their insurance. So anyone who um, thinks they might benefit from the vaccine at an older age should definitely have a conversation with their healthcare provider, and the chances are they could get that covered in some other way um, or even potentially pay for it on their own if that's something that they're concerned about. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy about sexually transmitted diseases. 
Um, now, some of the ones that we've talked about, uh, HPV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, there's others that I want to get to, syphilis, HIV, trichomonas. The, some, are, some are viruses, some are bacteria, some are parasite, um, and they're all sexually transmitted. But is it easier or harder to transmit some than others? Is it harder to contract? That's or? a great question. Um, I think probably HPV is exceptional in how easy it is to transmit. Um, others, including herpes, which we haven't mentioned up until now, gonorrhea, chlamydia, may or may not transmit, say, with one sexual encounter. Um, and we don't always have the greatest way of predicting what percentage likelihood someone has, has of getting a sexually transmitted infection with one sexual encounter, um, because sometimes it depends on what type of sex they're having, how healthy they are. Uh, but generally speaking, um, for people who have been exposed to gonorrhea or chlamydia, so we know their partner had gonorrhea or chlamydia, because we consider them to be very significant sexually transmitted infections, we would treat that person regardless of any symptoms, regardless of waiting to see whether they get the infection. The same holds true for syphilis. Um, we would treat uh, contacts of, of people who are known to have syphilis with uh, the medication to treat syphilis because it's a serious infection. We don't want to wait and find out whether somebody contracted it. Um, I do want to briefly mention herpes because I haven't brought that up. Herpes is also very, very common uh, sexually transmitted infection that's quite easily spread from person to person. Um, and it can be confusing to people because there are two types of herpes, type 1 and type 2. Um, type 1 can be spread by saliva, close contact with, let's say, kissing somebody, sharing food or drink with somebody, and many people are infected with type 1 when they're children, and that causes cold sores. Um, type 1, however, can also infect the genital area, um, and so it can be very difficult to know whether something that's a herpes infection um, was something that was contracted in childhood versus something that was contracted in adulthood. Um, based on a blood test, for example, because we might not be able to distinguish those two. Um, type 2 herpes tends to just live in the genital area, um, and so a blood test for type 2 that's positive would indicate uh, likely a sexually transmitted infection. Um, however, the symptoms in the genital area of type 1 and type 2 are the same, which is sores and blisters coming on from time to time. And yet many, many people also don't have symptoms of herpes and yet can spread it to other people. So this is one of the most common questions that we get at the Sexually Transmitted Infection Center is saying, um, I have something that looks like herpes. Does this mean that my partner and my new partner gave it to me? Does it mean that my, new, that, that my old partner is not faithful to me? And we oftentimes don't know the answer to that because um, whatever partner that person had might not have had any symptoms at the time that than the person we're seeing contracted their infection. And is there, do condoms prevent the spread? Of Absolutely. They do? Yes. Okay. So condoms are highly effective in preventing the spread, basically of all sexually transmitted infections. HPV is a bit more difficult because even skin-to-skin -skin contact in the genital area can spread HPV, and oftentimes skin-to-skin -skin contact will happen before somebody uses a condom. Uh, but even having said that, condoms still are effective in preventing the cervical infection with HPV.
So really condoms are highly effective at preventing all of these sexually transmitted infections. If you had one STD, are you more likely to get another? Does it set you up and um, make you more susceptible in any way? Yes, that's another great question. Uh, once the, the skin in the area becomes inflamed and you have one kind of infection, that sets up a, an avenue for another infection to go in. So it, it's very true that people who have one type of infection are at increased risk for other types of infections. Um, also, because as I said, infections tend to circulate within certain communities, once a certain community has a higher risk of infection, um, let's say college students, then because college students are likely to have sex with other college students, then it becomes more likely for you to contract whatever infection is running around that group. Well, I'm sorry that we have run out of time, but um, this has been Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's the medical director for Onondaga County's STD Center, as well as the medical director of Upstate Medical University's Immune Health Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast and radio show. Next up, what can fruit flies teach us about circadian rhythms in human sleep? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In the studio today, we have Amita Segal from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. She's a neuroscientist who is visiting Upstate Medical University as the keynote speaker for Student Research Day. She was kind enough to agree to this interview, and what I'd like to talk about with her is the research she's got going on in her lab because it sounds really interesting. She's doing sleep research on fruit flies. Welcome, Dr. Sigal. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, Thanks for having me. So we may think we know what it is, but let's start with the definition of circadian rhythm. What is that? So circadian rhythms are biological rhythms that have a periodicity of about 24 hours. Um, the best known example of a circadian rhythm is the sleep-wake cycle, but it's far from being the only one. So many other things in our body are cycling. Uh, body temperature, blood pressure, hormone levels, cholesterol metabolism, glucose metabolism. Truth of the matter is that it's hard to find in branch of physiology that doesn't on some level show 24-hour regulation. Interesting. Now, is this true for all animals or all living things, or is it just a human? Oh, not at all. It's true for, I would say, almost all living things. Um, plants? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Plants have very robust circadian rhythms. They, in particular, are really driven by light-dark cycles. So, you know, with photosynthesis taking okay. place during the day. So um, for, for plants, rhythms are actually very, very important. So do the circadian rhythms, is it something from inside us, or is it exterior factors that influence circadian rhythms? So that's a great question, and they are driven by internal clocks. So we all have clocks within us, and plants do too. Um, the clocks are synchronized to the day-night cycle. 
So, you know, presumably clocks evolved because we lived in a cyclic environment. And so it helped organisms to have these internal timekeeping mechanisms that could tell them um, when day and night were coming, you know, to anticipate the cycling environment. It makes me wonder about other parts of the globe where the um, sunlight is fewer hours in the day. Are the circadian rhythms different in living creatures there? So that's a really interesting question. And it turns out that when the night is greatly reduced, so there's a lot of daylight, you know, like in some reindeer up in the Arctic, um, they tend to lose their cycling. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and also circadian rhythms are affected in people who live in northern climates. So they still have clocks, but they are perturbed because of the dramatic changes in the environment. And that, of course, is also the area where there's a lot of seasonal affective disorder. Right, with yep. the darkness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, how similar are um, the fruit fly circadian rhythms to humans? Because I know you work with the fruit flies in your lab. Right. They're actually very similar. So the mechanisms of the clock, like, you know, how it is that you put a clock together on a genetic, on a molecular level, was actually figured out in Drosophila. And then Drosophila it, being the fruit fly. The fruit the fly, scientific I'm sorry. word for yes. this. Okay. Yeah, in the fruit fly. And then it turned out that those genes are conserved in mammals, including humans, and are even mutated in human circadian disorders. Neat. Well, I know your lab has many, many studies listed um, on the website, but I saw one that um, talked about acute sleep deprivation profoundly suppresses aggressive, aggressive behaviors in the fruit fly. Right. Is that something that surprised you? It did, actually, um, because the, the literature on aggression has been, on, on effects of sleep loss on aggression has been somewhat unclear. Like, I think there are reports out there that um, if you don't sleep, you're more aggressive. Um, And what we found was that it suppresses aggression. And I think that the important distinction to make here is between aggression and irritability. Oh, okay. Right. Being grouchy versus being aggressive. Yes, yes. And actually, it turns out that now even some studies in rats are starting to support the idea that loss of sleep is reducing aggression. And what we found with the fruit flies is that it reduces their aggression to the point where the males then don't compete very effectively for females. Okay, and then so that has some effect on the reproductive fitness as well? We actually didn't take it all that way there, but that would be the implication. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me make sure, though, uh, what you find in the fruit flies, does that necessarily correlate to what is happening in humans? with things? Uh, Not... All the, I mean, I'd be, you know, hesitant to say that that's always the case. So I okay. think that you have to take every finding on a case-by-case basis. And in some cases, of course, they have been validated in humans. For instance, the clock mechanisms. Um, in others, they haven't yet. Okay. Well, your lab um, also isolated the timeless clock gene. Yes. What, what is that? So it's a gene that's part of the circadian clock in flies. Um, so it's critical when you don't have a timeless gene in flies then they don't have rhythms. Huh. And so some of them don't have this gene. Well, the we can create mutants in the lab that don't. Okay. In the wild, I don't know if there are any fruit flies that don't have timeless. Okay. Well, one of the most recent papers I found is about the molecular mechanisms of sleep homeostasis in flies and mammals. 
Um, the abstract says that sleep is homeostatically regulated with sleep pressure accumulating with the increasing duration of prior wakefulness. Right. So am I understanding this to mean that the longer we stay awake, the more we need sleep? Right. And that is something that's independent of the circadian clock. Really? Yeah. So the clock is a timekeeper, right? It's telling you what time of day it is and you're sleeping at night because that is what your body has evolved to do. Um, but the clock is not really determining um, the quality or amount of sleep necessarily. Okay? okay. And even if you didn't have a clock, you would still sleep. It just wouldn't be all consolidated at night. It would be like randomly distributed. And, and that is because there's this other system in place that we call loosely the homeostatic system which ensures that you get enough sleep because sleep presumably is essential. And so, you know, just like there's a system in place that makes you eat, mm -hmm. normally you would eat during the day. But again, even if you didn't have a clock, you would eat whenever because your body needs it. So the thinking is that sleep is the same way. There's a homeostatic need for it. So, uh, and sometimes that homeostatic system will override the clock. So if you've been up all night, you'll sleep in the morning, Although your clock at that point is telling you to wake up. Interesting. All right. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neuroscientist Amita Sagal about her sleep research in her lab at the University of Pennsylvania. She's at Upstate to give a keynote address for Student Research Day. So um, how did you get started in this area of research? Because you've been at it for a while. I have been at it begin? for a while. So as a graduate student, I worked on a, a human gene, uh, nerve growth factor and the receptor for nerve growth factor. And um, working with the human gene, you realize the limitations of the system. You know, it's very hard to do genetics and so forth. So I started to think, well, for my postdoctoral work, I'd like to work on a genetic model. Flies are great for genetics. And initially, I thought I would work on neurodevelopment, which was in keeping with my graduate work. But then I, I, the idea of studying the molecular basis of behavior really appealed to me. And I realized that circadian rhythms were the best behavior to study. Of course, I'm a little biased here um, because they're very robust, very stereotyped. They're not very, you know, they're very consistent from animal to animal. So it's really a beautiful behavior to be able to dissect on a molecular level. Circa and yeah, so yeah. that's how we got to circadian rhythms. And then the, some of the, our work on sleep kind of evolved from that. Yeah, it kind of makes sense that it, it would. Or do you have some research that looks at other, um, besides sleep, that oh, are yeah. dictated by circadian? What are some so we look other? at like metabolic outputs. So metabolism is hugely rhythmic. And we're using the fly to also understand how um, circadian clocks in metabolic tissues and in the brain are speaking to each other to control metabolism. So just trying to understand how that works, really. Right. Rather than right, right. Interesting. Yeah, to look at, you know, the neurons and the circuits and, yeah. Well, getting it, now that you've been looking in, at sleep for so long, do you ever worry about any of your own personal sleep habits? Do you ever second guess oh, what's going on? Oh, all the time. On? Really? When I worried about my sleep habits before I even worked on sleep. <laughs> I worried about my sleep when I was a child. <laughs> it was always very important to me. And I was never the kid that my parents had to, you know, put to bed because I was doing it for myself. Um, and so sometimes I like uh, wonder why it took me so long to start working on sleep because I, I worked on circadian rhythms before I worked on sleep. 
But but it's always been important to me, and so, advice I give my kids too. Have you learned anything from your research that you've applied to your own personal life? So um, the the thing that I've so the sleep was always important, right? I always knew that I didn't function very well if I didn't sleep enough. Um, so that hasn't changed too much. But I think that what one of the ways that my research has impacted my life is more with respect to the metabolic stuff, where I I try to restrict my eating to a twelve hour interval during the day. Oh, so because, 12 hour fast and 12 hour. Okay. Yes, yes. Oh. It doesn't always work, but I try to do that because our research tells us that that's very beneficial. Wow, in terms of health or in terms of weight maintenance or, or all both? Of the, all of the above. Oh, interesting. It does now. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some sleep habit things. Uh-huh. Um, and, and maybe you're, you're just kind of supposing this and maybe you have some research to back it up, but why is it that some people seem to need more sleep than others? Some people say they've got to have 10 hours and some people say they're good with three. So sleep need does vary a lot from person it to does. person. It does. Now, having said that, I will say that some people who say they need less sleep are deceiving themselves and everybody else, okay, because they kind of are depriving themselves all week long and then they crash over the weekend. Okay, so they didn't really need less sleep. But my collaborator at PAN, um, Dr. David Dinges, actually does this work with human subjects where he brings them in and he um, sleep restricts them or sleep deprives them and tests them for cognitive ability. And it turns out that some people, even after sleep restriction, do pretty well on cognitive tests and others do very badly. Um, Doesn't always correlate with what they say about themselves. But so he divides people into three groups. And, you know, we've been actually working with him to try to get at mechanisms, yeah. Well, at different ages also, like um, it seems, you know, babies and teenagers seem to need need more sleep. Is that because they're actively growing or? So we, we've actually published work on, on baby fruit flies mm. where they, all animals when they're young sleep a lot. And in the fly, in fruit flies, we showed that the high sleep is required in early life for the development of brain areas that drive adult behavior. So the the male flies, when they're deprived young, don't court very effectively when they're older. And there are parts of the brain circuitry that are affected. So yes, babies do need a lot. Teenagers, it's not even so much that they need a lot of sleep, but they have, their circadian patterns are changed. They're delayed. Oh, they're changing at that point. So, be, you know, kids tend to be advanced, like they're early people, teenagers. So, again, in the population, you will find some people who are early and some who are late. In the circadian field, we call them larks and owls. Huh, okay. Um, and But it also changes over the course of your life. So teenagers are delayed. Now, and it seems like as people get older, a yep. lot of older people get rise earlier. Yes, they're the advanced. Is that just yeah. kind of a normal cycle? It's normal. It's it normal. Is. They are advanced. And they also, uh, and again, we can model this in the fly, their sleep gets fragmented. Well, yeah, I was going to ask yeah. about the sleep problems yeah. that it seems to be, you know, people wake up when they don't want to wake up. Yep. Is so that... they have more nighttime awakenings and um, uh, more daytime sleep. And that's actually exactly what we see in flies as well as they get old. So even if it's a natural process, it's still very frustrating. For it is disruptive. It is disruptive. So, you know, you know, if we think about ways you could tinker with it to improve sleep. Interesting. Well, my guest has been Dr. Amita Sagal, a neuroscience researcher from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast and radio show.
Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, alternative facts or penicillin. Well, folks, the other day I rode my bike downtown to the March for Science. Pretty cool. Three of my favorite things together, science, democracy, and riding my bike. Got me to thinking, first off, what is science? Merriam-Webster says, knowledge about or study of the natural world based on facts learned through experiments and observation. A little dense, but basically somebody has an idea and then tests whether it's true or whether it's just a fantasy with little to do with reality. Even more down to earth, my definition, my bike helmet is science because scientists found helmets protect the brain in a crash. And my bike's flashing lights. Science, because scientists found cells in the eye that see flashing light easier than constant light. And I don't want to get run over. <laughs> and my yellow bike jacket. Science, because science showed yellow is one of the easiest colors to see. And I don't want to get run over. <laughs> and now, how to define democracy. Merriam-Webster again. A government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised by them directly or indirectly through a system of representation, usually involving periodically held free elections. From the Greek, demos, meaning people, and kratia, meaning power. People power. Simpler yet, democracy is biking to the march for science, partly because I'm a psychological scientist, unhappy that people in government are making decisions based on fantasy rather than fact, and partly because I had pneumonia as a kid and penicillin probably saved my life, and partly because the science of social psychology shows that making ourselves seen and heard profoundly influences others' behavior around us. So, even if the decider-in-chief makes unscientific decisions, while we can't influence him directly until the next election, we can let him and the people around him, aka our congressional representatives and senators, know they can't run us over. We want decisions based on facts. And one of the great things about democracy is that those of us lucky enough to live in one have the right to make our presence known. And that's a fact. I'm Rich. I like penicillin. O'Neill, thanks for checking in. Coming up next, the importance of estate planning. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
Estate planning is something everyone needs to think about, but it's especially important for those who have a chronic disease or a child with a disability. Tim Doolittle is here to explain the basics of estate planning. He's an attorney with the Wallatis Law Firm in Syracuse who specializes in estate planning and special needs planning. Welcome, Mr. Thank Doolittle. You. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with um, some basics. I think it's easy to confuse Medicaid and Medicare. Sure. So tell us the difference. Okay, so Medicare is um, what every American has the right to once they turn 65. Um, you've paid into the system for a very long time, and it's sort of a social safety net that the federal government has set up. So when you turn 65, you're automatically eligible for Medicare. There are other ways to become eligible for Medicare uh, before you turn 65. Um, one of those ways is after receiving two years of Social Security disability, um, you are automatically eligible for Medicare. Okay. And so Social Security disability may be for some medical reason. Sure. Uh, Social Security disability um, would be an income you would receive if you have a disability, and because of that disability, you are unable to work. Okay. So everyone eventually uh, qualifies for Medicare if they live long enough. Correct. Okay. And then so Medicaid... Medicaid is a needs-based program. So Medicaid is a program where if you meet certain income and resource tests, you become eligible for Medicaid coverage. And Medicaid coverage will basically pay for more things than Medicare will pay for. So it could pay the most obvious thing that people think about is nursing home coverage, having Medicaid cover for nursing home coverage. Um, But it also comes into play with children with disabilities to cover their um, services that they may need in the home. So would some people qualify for both Medicaid and Medicare or get both at the same time? Absolutely. Um, A lot of times you'll have people over the age of 65 who will be on Medicare and then have Medicaid kind of supplement their Medicare coverage. Okay. Together, do they cover everything you need or is there still a need for health insurance coverage too? If you are meeting the income and resource limits, Medicaid will cover everything that you need. Okay. All right. Well, we touched on, you mentioned Social Security disability, but let's, what, what is Social Security? There, I, there's three different types of payments? Sure. For- so the most obvious that everybody knows about is the Social Security that you receive once you retire. You know, you have the taxes taken out of your check okay. every week or every, bi-weekly. Um, and then when you turn 65, you're able to collect from that Social Security. So that's the standard Social Security payment. Um, there's also Supplemental Security Income. Um, that's governed by the uh, Social Security Administration, and that's income that they provide for individuals who have a disability and are not able to work. Um, this is a very, very uh, limited um, income. The resources you're allowed to have are limited to $2,000. So if you have over $2,000 of resources, you will not qualify for qualify. SSI. Okay, and what is the third type? The third type would be the Social Security Disability um, Insurance. This is um, if you're disabled and you've paid into the program for a long enough time, you may be eligible for payments that would be greater than the SSI payment you might receive. Um, and also, um, disabled adult children are able to collect on their parents' record for SSDI. Um, so if a parent is retired, an adult disabled child can collect from half of their parents' um, Social Security payments. So that's a oh, great program. Okay. All right. And that, um, this is a federal, pro- this applies across the nation. This is nationwide. This is a federal program. All right. Um, what about long-term care policies? Do they play a role in helping take care of someone with chronic condition or a disabled? Certainly. Um, if you are lucky enough to have long-term care insurance that you've been paying for 
um, prior to you needing long-term care coverage. Because you can't get it after you need it. Right. It It might be a little (laughs) expensive afterwards. Um, That'll be a set amount of money that can be spent towards your long-term care. So you might have a policy that would cover $250,000 of care. You can draw from that to pay for a private nursing home and get great um, great care in that private nursing home. So that okay. is a great option to consider. That some people might have. So, mm-hmm. so what happens um, when a child, let's talk about children with disabilities. Sure. What happens when that child reaches 18? So when that child reaches 18, um, their parents lose um, their legal authority over that child to make the decisions for them with regards to their medical decisions. Just um, like with any... With any 18-year-old, yep. So what parents might consider is uh, a guardianship proceeding or um, preparing some documents known as a power of attorney and healthcare proxy so that they can remain involved in their child's life. So a guardianship, is that something you have to go to a lawyer for or go to a judge? You can go to a lawyer for guardianship. Um, There are programs that the court has to help you do it yourself, Um, but a lawyer certainly can make it easier. If you're dealing with a child who has a developmental disability, there's a separate um, guardianship proceeding for that. And if you're dealing with an adult who has lost their capacity in their old age, whether it's dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that, there's a separate guardianship proceeding for that as well. Okay. Okay. So um, if if a parent goes that route, how do they ensure, I guess they're taking guardianship, they're keeping guardianship, they're Mm -hmm. not setting up a guardian for in the case of if, if in their demise. Correct. This would be effective once the judge approves it and it would stay in effect for that child's entire lifetime. And they would name a successor beyond them to replace them as the guardian. Do, do you get into powers of attorney and healthcare proxies when you do this guardianship too? Or? Um, you, they're kind of one or the other. Um, if a judge appoints a guardian for an individual, they're saying that that individual does not have the mental capacity to make decisions on their own. So a power of attorney and healthcare proxy are great in the situation where the child has mental capacity or the adult has mental capacity, but you want them to have a person to help them out, pay their bills, you know, go to the doctor with them, be able to talk to the doctor about everything that's going on. So that's where the power of attorney and healthcare proxy come in. Wonderful. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Tim Doolittle, an attorney who specializes in estate and special needs planning. So let's look a little toward the future um, in terms of estate planning. This is something everyone needs regardless of whether there's a disability or chronic disease, but um, what, what are some of the special concerns that someone with a disease or disability needs to sure. be aware of? So somebody um, who has a child with a disability, um, if that child is receiving public benefits, you have to have a very specialized estate plan to make sure that um, that child can still have money for their benefit, but not lose public benefits. What I see a lot of times is a grandparent leaves a child with autism, you know, a certain amount of money to help them out. Little did that grandparent know that might kick the child off of their public benefits that they need to uh, maintain their Medicaid coverage or their SSI or something like that. So what you can do with a specialized estate plan is set up what are called special needs trusts. Um, These are federally approved trusts that allow people to leave money for the benefit of a child or an adult with a disability and not put their public benefits in jeopardy. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this. Is a, a will, does that, would that be covered in a will? It or? could be covered in a will. You can have what's called a uh, testamentary special needs trust, and that is where the trust is set up once the will uh, goes through probate, that is after the parent dies, 
and you're starting to uh, distribute the parent's assets. Or you can set up the special needs trust during uh, the child or the parent's lifetime for the benefit of the child immediately. Okay. Is a will the same as an estate plan? Yes. Uh, will is. is part of an estate plan. Okay. So an estate plan could be just a will. It could be a will and a trust. It could be a will, a trust, a power of attorney, a health care proxy. Um, those are all things that you would want to consider in forming your estate plan. Do you still need an estate plan if you don't own property? If you do not own any property, I suppose you do not need an estate plan. Um, but, you know, everybody has a bank account. Everybody has, you know, something, it's something not... that they want to pass on to somebody else. Okay. Um, if you do not have a will in place, there's a state law that covers exactly where things go. So if you want to make sure things go where you want them to go, you have to set up a will. Now, some of these um, chronic diseases don't appear until later in life. So... Do people, I, I mean, do you plan for it ahead of time and then you just get lucky if you end up having that and then you do have a plan for it or can you put these plans in place after mm -hmm. you're diagnosed with? So a lot something? of times I see, I have clients come in, you know, they're 70 or 75 and they're thinking about what happens if I go into a nursing home? How can I start to protect my assets? Um, there is what's called a five-year look back period. If you're doing any sort of planning to protect your assets, um, you do have to start planning Five in advance, in, in five advance. years in advance. Yep. Okay. So people do need to think about these things before um, that chronic condition might come into play. Okay. So tell us what we need to know about regular trusts. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the special needs trust, but do um, is there a reason to have a trust? Sure. Okay. So um, what I would consider important for this program is if there's an adult with a chronic illness and they know that they're going to pass away um, you know, in the next few years because of the diagnosis they received. And they have children who might be not mature enough to receive an inheritance. They can set up an ordinary trust under their will to sort of protect the money until that child is able to um, be mature enough to have that money on their own. You and don't want Johnny decide. going out to buy a Ferrari or something okay. like that with an inheritance. Um, you can set up a trust under your will, name a close confidant, the trustee, and then that trustee can decide when the money is distributed to the child or for the benefit of the child. So can the uh, parent decide when they want that uh, time frame to be? Absolutely. They can say, you know, at age 25. They can say at age 30. Okay. It's whatever the parent wants to do. What are first versus third party special needs trusts and how do the distributions work for those? Sure. Um, so a first party special needs trust is a special needs trust that you set up when an individual that has a disability and is on public benefits, maybe they receive that $100,000 inheritance from their grandparent and it's going directly into their name. Federal law allows you to protect that money and use it for that child's benefit, but it has to be in what's called a first party special needs trust. Now, the reason that these are different from any other special needs trust is that there has to be a provision in that trust where there's a payback to the state Medicaid department um, once that child passes away if there's money left in the trust. So the, a first party special needs trust is essentially when you're trying to protect the individual that's receiving public benefits, their own money. That's where you get the first party. Okay. So third party special needs trust is where you're setting up a trust with anybody else's money in the world. It could be the parents leaving the inheritance specifically to a trust. It could be a grandparent that has extra money right now who wants to leave it for Johnny right now. They can set up a third party special needs trust for the benefit of Johnny. He gets the benefit of that money, but it doesn't put his public benefits in jeopardy. Okay, but at the end, if uh, when the child passes away, 
the money does go to the state? Only with a first party. Only with a first party. With a third okay. party, the uh, person who sets up the trust gets to decide where the money goes when the child passes away, if there's still money left in the trust. Can that money be used for um, like a nursing home care or something later in life, or are there stipulations about what it can be? So spent it's on? not. It cannot um, pay for anything that Medicaid's supposed to cover. So if, ah. if a person has Medicaid and they're receiving nursing home coverage, then the the special needs trust can't provide for that. But the point of these trusts is to supplement the individual's life beyond public benefits. So if the individual wants cable TV, they can pay for that every month. If the individual um, needs to go on a vacation, the it trust can pay, can pay for, for a vacation. Everything that you could think of that would supplement their life beyond what public benefits provide for. Okay. So the trustee would be the person who kind of works with the individual and people close to the individual to figure out what would be for the best benefit of that individual. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for talking with me about estate and special needs planning, Tim Doolittle. Um, and I also want to let listeners know they can sign up to attend a seminar you're participating in on Thursday, May 18th from 3 to 7 p.m. at Oasis in East Syracuse. Um, people can learn more by calling Upstate Connect um, 1-800-464-8668 or 315-464-8668. Uh, it's a free seminar from 3 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, May 18th. I'm Amber Smith, and this has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Tori Russell, a recent graduate of Wells College, reminds us how childhood hurts can cut deeply. Here is an excerpt from her chilling short story, Parental Lessons, Never Talk to Strangers. Layla was an obedient child. She always ate her veggies, even the broccoli. She went to bed when her mother told her to. She never ran with scissors. She got good grades and didn't watch too much TV. All the little sayings we learn and often disregard as children were the rules that Layla didn't know how to break. When she was 12, her father died. After her father died, her mother was different. She didn't talk as much. She started hiding herself away in her room more and more. She was moodier. Layla would come home from school walking herself from the bus stop because her mother forgot to come get her again and sit down to begin her homework. Hours later, her mother would come down and begin dinner. Layla would try to tell her about her day, how she got an A on the history quiz she'd been studying for, how this boy kept picking on her, how her English teacher was definitely out to get her. Oh, and can Kara come over for a sleepover this weekend? Her mother would make no response besides grunts or an occasional hmm. Her eyes were fixed on the stove as she stirred the boiling water. Eventually, Layla stopped speaking and her mother didn't appear to notice. Years passed as her mother sat between worlds, and Layla grew up, got a boyfriend, started staying out late, going to parties. Now when her parents' voices would echo in her ears, she would ignore them. Most of their rules no longer applied now anyway. She was no longer a child. She drank. She smoked. She ran with scissors. No one cared. It was Layla's senior year of high school when her mother pulled herself through the torn fabric between life and death. 
Her mother would be sitting at the table when Layla came home from school. She would chatter as she made dinner, ask about Layla's day. Layla didn't respond. There was one rule, only one rule, her parents had taught her that Layla had stuck firmly to all these years later. Don't talk to strangers. for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore refugee health care and treatments for chronic sinusitis. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.